it's nothing against the Section 8 voucher holders that there's, you know, they, they vehemently deny the notion that we penalize poor people or that we have notions about who Section 8 vouchers holders are. So they deny that there could be other reasons why they deny it. Just for um, our audience, there is some air quoting going on. Yes. Uh, yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin, dad and housing reporter for Cal Matters. And I'm Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles Times. And today, Wednesday, August 21st on the podcast, all about Section 8. So this is the federal uh, program for renter assistance for low-income families across Probably the country. Probably the, the most well-known affordable housing program there is. And now, after listening to this podcast, you will know more than the average American about the Section 8 program. And particularly about how it plays out in a high-cost state like California. And why are we talking about this this week? So we have, uh, there is a bill pending in the legislature uh, authored by uh, Senator Holly Mitchell from Los Angeles that would ban uh, landlords' ability to say no to prospective tenants solely based on the fact that they uh, have a Section 8 voucher. And a few cities in California have already passed um, similar ordinances, mm-hmm. right? Los Angeles recently passed year, one. Yeah. San Jose passed one. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a movement across the state to do something like this. Yeah. And really good guest for this topic. Yeah, sure. So we have State Senator Holly Mitchell. There you go. Yeah, the author of the bill. And also uh, a second guest to help kind of fill in some of the background about Section 8, Martha Galvez. She is a a research associate or principal research associate, rather, at the Urban Institute, um, a think tank that recently took took a hard look at how Section 8 plays out in Los Angeles. And just quickly with uh, State Senator Mitchell, we'll be talking about her Section 8 bill, but we'll also be talking about a wide variety of Housing topics including zoning reform and other things germane to her part of L.A. Before we begin, we have some announcements. Many, much news this week. Yeah, there's a lot going on with the Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis podcast (laughs) um, in the past couple weeks. Liam, um, why don't you start by, could you just frame this how you typically break up with a girlfriend? Matt, I have something to tell you. (laughs) Oh, no. Not again. (laughs) This is truly. This is not about you. This is about me. Um, uh, yeah, uh, but I'm I a- am so lonely. <laughs> Don't do this. So, um, despite that somewhat awkward uh, intro, I am uh, moving to Los Angeles uh, in October first. Um, to stay with the LA Times, I'm uh, just have a new assignment, which I'm super excited about. Um, so right now, as you are well aware, I write a lot about uh, kind of the housing concerns coming out of the state capitol. Uh, function a lot. I walk a lot around the the six to nine blocks that are around that building. Uh, but what I really enjoy, what I'm really looking forward to, to my new assignment is I'm going to be spending a lot more time in communities around the state understanding better how housing issues are, are affecting them on the ground. So, uh, yeah, so how I've kind of described this to people is, is right now um, about three-quarters of my time is based uh, kind of covering the legislature and issues around that, about a quarter in communities, and these kind of the, the, the percentages are going to flip. I am sad that you'll be leaving the Capitol for a couple reasons. First and foremost, um, we're friends. Yes. And it's going to be a bummer that you will not be here texting me to come out and do something and having me decline, <laughs> which is typically the case. Right. Secondly, it's a it's a huge loss for the capital reporting community. It, it really is. There is no one that really does what you do as well as you do it here, and there's no one to fill that void. And, you know, hopefully there will be another Liam Dillon that, that 
manifest himself or her herself. But it at least for until that person comes, housing legislation will not be tracked as as well as it could be here. It's it's a disservice. Well, that's extremely kind. Thank you uh, for that. I, I you know I'm looking forward to seeing what uh, you and other folks at Cal Matters do. Um, and obviously, we're going to have uh, someone uh, uh, who's going to be tracking this um, uh, out of our bureau as well. And you know, um, part He'll of my still be up here. Yeah, and part of my sometimes. job is going to be to cover. I mean, my job is to cover housing affordability issues across the state, and so I, I will be engaged and plugged in. And I think it's a nice transition to say that we will be, in fact, be continuing uh, yes. doing this podcast. We're going to. Uh, sort of see how things change given the, the new assignment, given the fact we're in different locations and writing on different things. But my hope, and I think this is yours too, is we'll be able to talk, kind of broaden our boundaries a little bit to talk a little bit more than simply what's going on in, in the legislature to kind of, uh, again, understand these on-the-ground issues and, and hopefully be more relevant to a wider audience. And by the way, it was really nice to see, once you announced this on Twitter, multiple people saying, is the podcast yes, going to still yes, happen? Yes. So thank you for that. Yeah. We will still devote a decent amount of the podcast to some of the most high-profile action that's happening here in Sacramento, because I think that is why a good amount of yes. our listeners tune in. Yes. Um, and you'll still be reporting on that. I'll still be reporting on that. Um, but yeah, I think it's an opportunity for us to kind of broaden this out. Another ex- Exciting announcement! It's that, exciting that you're moving to LA. This, yeah, this this is this is we're I mean this is a, we're about to announce is the first time we're announcing this. So great! So it is great. We're gonna do a live event. We are September 18th in San Francisco. Matt Levin and Liam Dillon are gonna solve the California housing crisis. That's how we're framing this event with some help. So I don't think we need help to solve the California housing crisis. I think me and you pretty much can do it. But we did get three very very good guests. To assist us and inform yes. this conversation. Yes. Um, so who we got? We have uh, Oakland Mayor Libby Schaff, um, who has done some very interesting things in in her city, um, kind of all across the spectrum in terms of um, promoting uh, development overall, and also some some renter assistance and, and things like that. Yeah. Uh, we have uh, Dr. Margot Cushell of UCSF, who is specializes in addressing uh, homelessness issues. Um, and then we also have uh, Candice Gonzalez. She's a developer with uh, Sandhill Company uh, and also previously worked in, which is a for-profit developer, but previously worked as a nonprofit developer in Silicon Valley uh, and is now uh, a- assisting on the kind of very famous project in Cupertino that would uh, potentially change a uh, old outdated mall into a, a large mixed income project. Uh, yeah, you may recognize Sand Hill as the developer trying to redevelop Valco. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and we should also say uh, Dr. Cushell mm-hmm. is the head of a research institute at UCSF that recently got, I think, was it $30 million? I want to say that number's right. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. from Mark Benioff um, to study ways to end homelessness. We got really good guests. I'm yeah. excited for this. And this event's free. Yeah. Uh, around your lunch hour. So if you're in the Bay Area, come and join us. Come on. Come on. See us. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Eventbrite page to register for this should be up by the time this podcast is published. So we'll also put it in the show notes. Come and see Gimme Shelter in person. And I think we're going to keep some of the gimmicks of our yeah, show. We should. Yeah, we'll, we'll have an avocado. And why didn't we get the Avocado Growers Association to sponsor this thing? This would have been a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. I followed them on Twitter. They followed back. Mm. Yeah. How, how big of a moment was that for you? It was nice. They have a lot of followers, the avocados, for good reason. Yeah, of course. Yeah, they're avocados delicious. Are great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, again, that's September 18th at the Bechtel Conference Center, I think that's right, at the Public Policy Institute of California in downtown San Francisco, around 
lunch lunchtime. Yep. Noon to one thirty. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Any other house business? Yeah, we have one more thing. We're famous. We now, uh, because of our fame, yeah, uh, have stipple- not only our fame, our yeah. power, our fame and power. Good, good, good. Uh, we have stipple drawings of ourselves. Boom. Yes, this is a lifelong goal. Now it's been reached. What's a stipple drawing very quickly? Yeah, so it's like kind of like the pointy thing, like the pointal, pointillism, if you will, of mm. like kind of dots around filling in your, your face, uh, what you see in the Wall Street Journal. Yes, exactly. Yes, right. That's always yeah. what I thought yes. eventually I would be when I was, you know, indicted for tax fraud. <laughs> right. Um, but uh, both Liam and I were stippled. Yes. Past mm-hmm. tense. Mm-hmm. Um, as uh, recognition of Gimme Shelter being the 99th, 99th out of 100. Yes. 99th most influential entity, Powerful, person, thing. Yes. Um, non-politician. In, non-politician <laughs> in the capital community. Yeah. So thank you to Capital Weekly. Yes. Uh, puts on this event every year, uh, listing sort of these top uh, 100, uh, well, let's call them influencers. That's what we are. Um, I don't like that. So we're 99 out of 100, which is great. A uh, really wonderful number. So yes. thank you. I mean, the true denominator <laughs> yeah. is there's a lot of people in Sacramento <laughs> that would want to be on this list. Yeah. But and not that many media members. No. So there we go. So thanks to Cap Weekly. It was really nice to see. It uh, was. Uh, and very kind. And thank you to all of our listeners who are the reason that we are on that list. Yes. Let's move on to the most popular segment in all of California housing podcastery. It is... The avocado of the fortnight. Our look at the most absurd California housing story of the past two weeks, in this case, three weeks. This one was uh, ripe for the picking. Yeah. Um, Kind of an obvious choice here. Yeah. This one uh, comes from uh, Manhattan Beach, a lovely beachside community in Southern California. Have you been to Manhattan Beach? I have, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's lovely. Uh, What's uh, what's avocado about Manhattan Beach? Well, there's a house in Manhattan Beach, uh, and that house, uh, the base color is pink, which okay, a little bit out of a little bit out of character, I'd say, for Manhattan Beach. Mm. But what really uh, kicks this one up a notch, it, well, there's many things, uh, is that there are emojis now on the house. And and why? Whew. You know, you ask a question like this, you think you have a simple answer, but there are, there is. A deep and dark backstory to the emoji house, which is literally, you should need to see a picture. This is Google emoji house, giant emoji faces. One is uh, kind of the uh, googly eyes kind of face. Mm-hmm. Long eyebrows. Long eyebrows and the or eyelashes. Rather. Sorry, eyelashes. Yeah, yeah. Not, the emojis don't have eyebrows, Matt. Come on. Damn it. Right. And then the other one is the, the zipper face. So don't say anything, the face. You know, mm. then be quiet. Yeah. Right. Uh, so... Um, where do we begin with this backstory? Um, <laughs> let's not let's not get too into the backstory. Uh, okay, okay. But so uh, it, Airbnb's banned in Manhattan Beach. Yes. Um, and the owner of this house yes. before it became the Emoji House. Yes. It was alleged. I don't know how yeah. documented they, or they proven find, it was. Find find many thousands of dollars as a result of uh, violating. It being rented out in, as yes, some it, type it, of short-term rental. Exactly. Um, and the owner of the house said, all right, neighbors. They hired an artist to paint these emojis on the house. And then there was a caption, since deleted, on a social media post from the owner that said, uh, are your neighbors constantly ratting you out? 
Have they cost you thousands of fines? Why risk a case when you can send them a pretty message? So the neighbors don't like the fact that there are these giant emojis on the <laughs> house, either aesthetically or for the possible uh, retaliatory nature yes. of these uh, giant emojis. Yeah. But in general, people can paint their houses whatever they would like. I mean, I mean that seems to be a thing that is generally accepted in the world, or at least in the United is States. It? Is it? Yeah, at least Ask in, the Flintstone house lady. <laughs> I mean that this is this is a recurring yeah, a recurring yeah, theme that would yeah. tie to an actual right. real political issue here in That's California right. is That's homeowners and do, do they have rights beyond just their property? Yes, and or even the rights neighborhood on their character. Property. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Of the, of so do um, emojis? I guess you know the neighborhood character argument on the emojis uh, here. Um, and and some, what's the real fear here? Oh boy. Um, <laughs> so. First of all, there is there is a neighbor that is alleges that this emoji house painting is in fact bullying. So that's number one. So the emoji was the, yeah. is, the, is a bully. That's not what case. I'm referring to, though. Okay. What is everyone so, really scared of of the of the precedent that this could yes. set? So we had a great story in the Times uh, about this, um, and we spoke to one neighbor who, who has lived on the street for nearly or more than two decades now, who she's concerned that the situation could quickly become a slippery slope. If the city continued to cower behind freedom of speech and allow the emoji house to continue to exist. If the city allows these emojis, she wondered, if they would allow some of the more extreme ones, such as the poop emoji. That's it. So, That's it. Uh, you know, it's one thing. I mean, emoji house. Yeah. But can you imagine the road to the poop emoji house? I know. Yeah. Yeah. If we let this stand, what's next? You know, I got to say, yeah. and you know how um, reticent I am to editorialize on this podcast. Ret- you're very reticent. Um, but I I feel like I should have the right to put a poop emoji on any piece of property that I own. Okay. You, you no, know, you, you're not going to venture into the space here with me? You're just no. going to leave me out here? <laughs> You're not going to touch the poop emoji. <laughs> Feel like if you want to embrace the poop emoji, then that's that's that you by I all do means you're right. The poop emoji. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let me let me let me ask you this: What yes. would be more upsetting to your average um, uh, homeowner group? Yes. Um, a poop emoji house. Yes. Or a four to six story apartment <laughs> building. Um, what, what what do you think would rile them up more? Well, I think that's actually a legitimate question. <laughs> A lot of avocado stuff happening in the last three weeks. Oh, my gosh. A lot of stuff didn't. Kanye West. We didn't we mention, mention Kanye, Kanye West. West getting real quick, building real quick permit. update. Yeah. yeah the, the neighbors called the building inspectors on him. Kanye didn't get his permits, it seems. For his Star Wars-themed affordable <laughs> housing development. Uh, yeah. So it's been, it's been a crazy three weeks. Yeah. It's been fun. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Let's talk about Senator Mitchell's legislation. What would the legislation actually try to do and what's happening with it now? So uh, it should be worth noting that in California, it is already illegal to deny housing based on someone's source of income. Yes. Uh, what this law would change, though, is would extend that definition to the federal housing uh, voucher program known as Section 8. And so it would essentially say that landlords would no longer be allowed to deny someone um, uh, 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 a rental simply based on the fact that they have a Section 8 voucher. And if you go on Craigslist right now and if you search um, Sacramento apartments, you will see apartment listings where in the bottom of the listing or maybe even in a different portion of the listing, it'll very explicitly say no Section 8. Right. 
And that's such a trick. I mean, you'll see them on signs that people, oh yeah 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 yeah. Clear. yeah so this yeah. isn't a covert form of discrimination right now. Right. It's very much explicit in those places that have not banned discrimination based on Section 8 already. Yeah. And we see this, I mean, playing out pretty clearly. You know, there's a really sad story um, coming out this week in the city of Alameda, uh, a Bay Area city where you have an 87-year-old uh, Holocaust survivor who is uh, being threatened with eviction there. And the landlord very very clearly, uh, that the gentleman is on Section 8, um, and the landlord very clearly said, um, I don't want Section 8 in my in my building anymore. And, we you know, we get, in, we get into, um, in the uh, interviews, some some very legitimate reasons why that that yes. that that that, may, that you understand can understand if you're a landlord why you would not want um, to deal with that program, um, and so we'll we'll get into more of that. But certainly the 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 idea uh, is out there and said um, a lot. Yeah, we want to be clear. We're, yeah. We we are not saying that if you refuse to accept Section Eight, it is only because you don't like low income people. Right, and, and that's sort of the argument is that uh, by by uh, the, there, there those are bureaucratic the, hurdles that right. you have to get through. Sure, sure, if, sure, sure. If you're going to run out to someone who is Section Eight, right, and we don't want to either overplay or downplay yes. uh, the fact that yes, um, there is some research that shows that um, uh, uh, those who discriminate on Section Eight, uh, it can be used as a proxy for discrimination race based and on class. race and class and, yeah. the, and those sorts of things. Of yeah. course, right? Yeah. So we've talked a lot about how difficult it is to pass. Um, pro-renter, pro-tenant legislation in the Capitol. And we've seen many examples of tenant legislation dying um, over the past two legislative sessions. Mm -hmm. Um, What's going to happen most likely with this bill and how does it relate at all um, to the other marquee tenant protection measure that's still left, which is the bill from Assemblymember David Chu of San Francisco um, that would cap annual rent increases at about 10 percent and provide just cause eviction protections. Yeah. So I, I think to your point about, uh, you know, tenant uh, uh, tenant bills being difficult to pass certainly extends to, to, to this bill. Um, I mean, I think this is a continues to be a difficult to pass uh, piece of legislation. Uh, so we'll see, you know, in the last few weeks of the year um, how far it uh, it would advance. Um, I think a lot of the attention now is is on that rent cap bill. And, you know, as oftentimes as happens in, in the Capitol, when there's uh, a bunch of different pieces of legislation on a particular issue, uh, many, many times you'll see sort of one, you know, lawmakers will say, we'd like to take one hard vote, please. Um, uh, and so if you're going to make us go up or go up is kind of capital slang for vote in favor of a particular bill on a particular issue that's hard, usually uh, or oftentimes rather you only see one uh, uh, of those sorts of pieces of legislation passing. And so uh, I can't certainly can't say for sure whether that would be an outcome here, but given how things work, uh, I would not be shocked if that were the case. And just a reminder of kind of where we are in the legislative calendar for both uh, the rent cap bill and for the Section 8 discrimination bill. Two key deadlines to keep in mind. The suspense file, um, which is a term that uh, many of our listeners are now very well acquainted with because of what happened with uh, SB 50, and so why do we have the suspense file again in our lives? Yes. So um, uh, as you know, bills have to clear both houses of the legislature to become law back from your um, uh, the schoolhouse rock days. Right. Um, and so uh, the, 
we go through fiscal committees in, in both houses. Uh, and so there's another example of of uh, this appropriations committee suspense file that is coming up uh, at the end of this month, uh, August, where we'll see, you know, the bills get held like uh, Senate Bill 50 did, or they uh, push through with potentially with some changes. And so, um, you know, that's a key deadline for the, the all the legislation, including the, the sort of renter bills that um, uh, plus then uh, after that happens, we have a deadline of uh, September 13th, Friday the 13th, if you will, not if you will, that's a fact, um, where all bills have to pass, both houses of the legislature in their final form. It's the drop-dead date for pretty much everything. Anything else on Section 8 we should hit? No, I think we're, we're going to hit it all on the, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. okay. Uh, let's move on to the interviews. We are here with uh, Martha Galvez. She is a principal research associate at the Urban Institute. Martha, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, thanks for having me. So maybe we could start. Can, can you tell us uh, what the Section 8 program is and how it functions? Sure. So the Section 8 program is the largest rental assistance program um, operated by the federal government or funded by the federal government. And money comes uh, through the Department of Housing and Urban Development to a network of local public housing authorities nationwide, something between three and 4,000 of them. Um, that administer individual housing choice vouchers. Um, the uh, vouchers go directly to families who can use them for rental housing that they find themselves out in the private market. Um, so as opposed to public housing, which is kind of the traditional model of place-based housing, folks live in a unit, the unit remains affordable, and different families move in and out, vouchers go to individual families who uh, take them with them as they move. Who's eligible for Section 8? So low-income families, I think the um, technical eligibility is something like 80% of area median income, and mm-hmm. uh, HUD will make those calculations, right. and housing authorities will check uh, eligibility against that. But in practice, it's really folks who are much uh, have much lower incomes than that, so more like 30% of area median income or between 0 and 30%. So really low-income families, and yeah. I think the average um, is something like twelve or thirteen thousand dollars a year. Mm-hmm. So, 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 so why is that? Is it just yeah. that, that the demand is so strong, the money uh, it tends to go towards those who need it the most? Yep, for sure. Yeah. Um, housing authorities are required to prioritize a certain percentage of the vouchers need to go to extremely low-income families, mm-hmm. so folks who are in that zero to thirty percent category. Um, but also, demand is so high. Uh, the estimates are between um, only one in five uh, or one in four households who are actually eligible for vouchers based on their income. There's only about, um, you know, only about one in five of them actually can get a voucher. There's only enough to serve about one in five. How much money on average does a voucher holder get, and how does it vary by region? Uh, region? Yeah. yeah. So it gets a little complicated. Um, typically. It's, uh, so it's hard to put a dollar amount on what any individual family might get. It'll vary from, from region to region or from housing market to housing market. So you get a voucher. The voucher has a value placed on it, a payment standard that the person can use it towards. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can look for units that are up to a maximum rent. And that maximum rent that they can rent, it will vary from location to location, um, and those maximum rent levels are set by a combination of housing authorities and HUD. It gets really complicated. Sure. Okay. In terms of what households 
pay, um, they'll find a unit that has a certain rent. They're responsible to contribute 30% of their income, mm-hmm. and the voucher will cover the rest up to this rental cap, this I, maximum payment standard. I, uh, the household will pay their rent directly to a landlord, and the housing authority will pay the landlord directly as well. I see. So the, the argument from the landlord's perspective is, look, you're getting your market rate rent no matter what. It's just that the source of that rent is coming both from the the, the family's portion and from this, uh, this subsidy as well. That's right. Yeah. And some landlords will view it as, oh, this is a guaranteed rent payment, sure. right? Yeah. Mm. Some portion of the rent is guaranteed to me every month. Mm-hmm. Um, others will look at it more as this is really complicated. Mm. I have to enter into a lease with a, with a household, and then I also have to enter into a contract with a housing authority, and mm-hmm. it's seen as you know a more administrative burden. And there is some stuff that is layered on top of it. it there, there are more steps than there would be to just dealing with a family directly. But you're right. At the end of the day, there is a portion of the rent that is guaranteed by the federal government through housing authorities. So what are some of those steps that are layered on top of this? So once a family finds a, an apartment uh, that the landlord says that they'll accept a voucher, and that's not an easy path to get there, right. they need to bring that unit essentially to the housing authority or uh, ask the housing authority to inspect that unit. Mm-hmm. Um, and the landlord of that unit needs to allow someone to come and, and inspect the unit and then make any uh, repairs to the unit that that inspector requires in order for the unit to be eligible for a voucher. So there are minimum housing quality standards that are going to live in a uh, voucher-assisted unit. Can you give us some examples of those standards? Oh, wow. So I know some of them just from having you know, heard about it through the years, but I'm not an expert on exactly what they're, they're looking for. Um, but they'll go in and make sure it's, uh, it's at least habitable, uh, okay. you know, no feeling yeah. paint. If right. it, in some places, if it's uh, a unit uh, over a certain age, they'll check, check for, for things that might have yeah. to do with lead right. or yeah. possibly not allow families to have small children's, children live in it. Sure. Um, they'll check for mold. They'll check for exposed wires. They'll check for plumbing and heating and all that kind of stuff. Sometimes um, I think one of the things you hear about the program, and I'm not an expert on the specifics about inspections, is that it's it's really variable, Mm. that Mm. it's not necessarily predictable for landlords um, how those inspections are going to go, what those standards might be, how long it might take to hear about them uh, or to, I'm sorry, have an inspection done. Um, so uh, there's a lot around the inspection process that we hear about as being a burden for landlords or being kind of an obstacle mm-hmm. for, uh, for families that are searching for housing. But that, again, it's such a, a dispersed network of housing authorities that are doing this. It can be very different from place to place. Mm-hmm. So you uh, folks uh, did a study examining um, different areas of the country and how Section 8 functioned there what can you tell us about what you found in the Los Angeles area? Sure. So we did a study of, um, of landlord acceptance of housing choice vouchers or discrimination against voucher holders in five different cities, and L.A. was one of them. Uh, it was our biggest site. Uh, and we found really pretty high levels of discrimination. So, um, so we found that 76% of landlords in Los Angeles just said no outright. 
of the landlords that we tested hmm. to folks who had vouchers. So we sent people out uh, into the field, or first we started with phone calls. We selected a sample of ads from um, neighborhoods all over the L.A. area, mm-hmm. uh, called up the ones that uh, met the voucher payment standards, they were the right size, they were the right price, uh, and had testers walk through some conversations with landlords and ask them if they accepted vouchers and then yeah. recorded the response. Hmm. So 76 of landlords right off the bat in that phone call said no. Wow. Uh, in neighborhoods that were lower poverty, so they were had poverty rates below 10%, and from those neighborhoods, we expect lots of other things as well, right? Like maybe better schools, more amenities, yeah. just a higher quality of life and access to services, lower crime. Uh, in neighborhoods that had lower poverty rates, 82% of landlords said no right mm-hmm. off the bat. Mm-hmm. And then when you add in another 9 or 10% that kind of hedged, either they said they didn't know if they accepted vouchers or maybe they did, but it had to meet some conditions. Um, it goes up another, uh, you know, 10%. So really, at the end of the day, uh, someone searching for a voucher, searching for housing with a voucher in L.A. is going to have a really hard time finding a unit. It, it seems like also some of the promise or original intent of Section 8, which was to allow low-income people to move into communities of higher opportunity, um, Section 8 is not fulfilling that intention. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I think um, we've known that for a while. Uh, And I don't want to suggest that this isn't a really important and valuable program. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the main tool that we have to help extremely low-income people uh, achieve housing stability. There's not enough of it. We need more. And it's fulfilling its basic goal of helping low-income families. Um, But this one goal that we have for the program of seeing it as a tool to get people into lower poverty neighborhoods, into neighborhoods with um, access to opportunities, it, it hasn't fulfilled that, that goal. So this study, I think, really, I think it, there's been some testing in some places over the years, and anecdotally people know that uh, landlords rejecting vouchers is a common thing and a big problem. Right. But this study really put a number on it and uh, kind of highlighted just how hard it is. And just how common it is for vouchers to not be able to find, for voucher holders to come up short. So why do you think that that is? What do you make of the results? Why do you think that the rejection are at such a high rate? So I think it's probably a combination of things. And we didn't really, as part of our testing process, um, we didn't have the opportunity to ask landlords why. But we think that there are a couple things going on. Um, One is a little of what we talked about already, where... uh, it's sometimes hard to deal with housing authorities, that there are some aspects of the program that um, maybe could be a little more streamlined, could be a little bit more efficient. Uh, it is another layer of administrative burden that goes on on top of the regular leasing process, right? So like what? And in some places, what? go oh, ahead, sorry. I, I was just going to ask, like, what specifically is um, burdensome for landlords? Beyond the inspections? Sometimes it could be that inspections do take a really long time. Sometimes it could be that housing authorities don't pay on time or or something like that. We don't know how often that all actually happens. Mm -hmm. It is things that landlords say. Um, But it could also just be that, you know, uh, whereas before they needed to just deal with a family, now they deal with a family and a housing authority. Yeah. 
But I, obviously, I, I imagine you don't feel that that those sorts of uh, arguments explain the the entire reason why um, you have such rejection rates at the rates that you were that you found. Yep. No, definitely not. Yeah. I mean, I think there's also uh, there's probably three buckets of things going yeah. going on at least. Um, one is this issue of just kind of dealing with housing authorities and how the program functions itself. The other is kind of the characteristics of the markets where people are living. Um, L.A. is a high-cost place. Yeah. Uh, places that are more expensive, there's more demand for units, especially at the lower end, and landlords don't have to wait. They don't have to deal with inspections. Uh, there's other people who want their units, especially um, in for nicer units in nicer neighborhoods, right? Mm-hmm. In some places, the voucher payment standard might not actually reach the level that the market is calling for, yeah. right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. uh, when voucher payment standards are set in ways that better reflect the actual costs in neighbor, at the neighborhood level, mm-hmm. whether that's a zip code or in some places they'll base it like Washington, D.C., on an actual neighborhood, um, that those uh, that seems to work better for mm-hmm. landlords and for people searching for housing yeah. than when payment standards are, are set at some like big metropolitan uh, statistical area level or county level. Right. Uh, uh-huh. It's hard to hit that right spot where the voucher payment standard perfectly matches what a neighborhood rent is, right, sure. or what the, the right rent is for a neighborhood at, at any particular time. It's a complicated process. But some places are better at it than others. And when you can set those rents closer to what the neighborhood actual rents are, um, it, it's easier to find housing with a voucher. It I, was very hard for us to find units to rent in, in L.A. for a variety of reasons. Right. Um, and for, to even to do the testing that we wanted to do, it was very hard to find units that were eligible for vouchers. And then of those units that were eligible, it was very hard to find landlords that would accept them. So there's a combination of market characteristics happening um, on top of you know discrimination that's making it hard for families to get into neighborhoods. Right. So we want to get I would get to the third bucket. So correct me if I'm wrong. First bucket is it may be difficult because of the potential sort of what I will call red tape issues with the program itself. Second, maybe with the matching between the what a landlord could get on the open market versus what the uh, uh, ultimate subsidy is going to give them. And so what's what's our what's our third bucket here? So I think the third bucket would be issues of discrimination that are based on landlord perceptions of poor people or yeah. voucher holders yeah. or of who voucher holders are, right. whether that they're people of color or that they're you know families. Um, most voucher holders are uh, people of color, families, and people with disabilities. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, protected classes under the Fair Housing Act. Otherwise, voucher holders themselves, source of income, is not a protected group right. um, under federal fair housing law. So, you know, there's, there's definitely um, the, 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 there's definitely some discrimination going on that is likely based on things that have nothing to do with admission of the program um, or, you know, landlords' other options in terms of what they can, what, what the market will bear for renting their unit. Um, landlords are could be basing their decisions just on negative perceptions of who they think voucher holders are. Yeah. And I imagine it's in the research, it's very, very difficult to isolate um, which of those factors goes into any specific decision. Yeah, I mean, we um, tried to look at 
uh, variations in how voucher holders were treated based on their race. Mm. And we just didn't have a big enough sample in order to do that. And yeah. as I, I mentioned, that we had to drop L.A. We have to tr- stop testing in L.A. Um, we also stopped testing in Fort Worth. Um, because it was so difficult to find landlords that would um, take voucher holders. And the the way our testing was structured, the element of of race came in at the very end when Mm. there were Mm. uh, in-person interactions with landlords, when when testers actually went to units to go and try and meet a landlord and to see a unit. So by the time we got to that end of the testing, uh, all the discrimination had already happened. Right. Uh, even the point of getting to the phone call, um, a, another phone call to schedule a rent, and then actually seeing a unit, we saw that landlords were standing up voucher holders more than they were standing up without people without vouchers. Mm. So um, I think the, you know, there is research out there that does show the race component of this, and and uh, that voucher holder or landlords. Um, that some landlords are viewing the voucher as a proxy for race, yeah. right, mm-hmm. and discriminating against voucher holders based on their assumptions that they are people of color. Right. Uh, there's some research, I think, out of Chicago and um, a, a couple of other places that that documents that. So the fact that we didn't see it in our work is by no means saying that it doesn't exist. Right. Uh, it's more the fact that we didn't see it in our work is really more reflective of the, just the degree of discrimination that we were seeing in our work uh, yeah. that wouldn't even allow, allow us to get to the question. One solution, at least to that uh, third bucket, is just banning landlords from discriminating on the basis of uh, Section 8. What does the research say about the efficacy of that solution? So the research on that is, is, is mixed. Um, I think that it's a really hard thing to measure uh, there are places that have source of income protections in place. Um, we saw through our study that the two places that had source of income protections in place also had much lower uh, denial rates. Uh-huh. We saw lower level, levels of discrimination in uh, Washington, D.C., uh, in Philadelphia to a, a lesser degree, and in Newark, the places that do have source of income protections in place. Um, there was some mixed findings in there. So in Philadelphia, we still saw pretty high rates of, of discrimination. About two-thirds of landlords did say no in Philadelphia. Sounds like and that Philadelphia. was one of the places that it seems like, you know, there was there's a lot of contentious relationships between the landlords and the housing authority. Yeah. Um, there was something else going on there. To kind of sum up in some way here, it sound, it's, uh, by all the numbers, very, very difficult to even get one of these vouchers in the first place if you're eligible for it. And then secondarily, if you are one of the lucky ones to get one of these vouchers, it is then extremely difficult to actually be able to use it. Yep, I think that's right. Uh, that's extremely and We have pretty depressing. high expectations yeah. Yeah. of the program. Right. And we, you know, we want people to be able to use it to move to low-poverty neighborhoods with great schools. Um. But there's a lot of barriers to their ability to, to, to do that. You hear this actually from uh, both people on the progressive left and on the uh, conservative right. Would it be a simpler solution just to give lower income people struggling to afford rent cash? Right. And, you know, um, there is a, that's a very uh, contentious um, 
proposal or some folks yeah i think you're you put it right on both sides uh have have proposed that and and some folks on both sides have really strong feelings for and against i think the main issue with that is how to deal with this idea of trying to make sure that folks who have um who have federal assistance are living in high-quality units. Um, the inspection process does play a role. The idea that, you know, there is a minimum amount, amount of housing that you want people to be able to or want people to have, um, and how would, you, how would you make sure that's happening if it's just a cash, a cash assistance? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a tough question. But when you also see... Um, just how difficult it is to use vouchers, uh, it does seem like, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's worth thinking about. I tend to think that the, the ways to make the voucher more effective are re- to really um, start thinking about what are all these tools that we know might help minimize the red tape. There are things that we know will work, um, but we haven't really had the opportunity, and we being... Um, folks who are uh, on the ground and running these programs to to invest in, in those options. All right. Uh, well, Martha, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate your time. Thank you. I hope it was useful. This was great. Thank you, Martha. Take care. So we're here with Senator Holly Mitchell, a Democrat who represents Los Angeles. Senator Mitchell, thank you so much for being with us. I appreciate you having me. So tell us about your, your bill. Uh, I'm proud to be carrying uh, this year Senate Bill 329, what we're calling the Housing Opportunities Act. Uh, You know, uh, I've had a number of colleagues in the legislature when we're talking about homelessness and housing affordability, and not just colleagues, but when I'm home in the district and people say, well, what about Section 8? People want to, you know, it's like when you talk about education funding and people say, what happened to the lottery money? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So people kind of get stuck on these ideas and concepts of what they believe, you know, is working. And sometimes it's working, sometimes it's not. And so people say, you know, what about, you know, Section 8? And, you know, when we looked at the rate, the take-up rate, if you will, of um, um, housing vouchers, Section 8 and other vouchers, um, it became crystal clear that people were being discriminated against based on the source of their income. So if I have a housing voucher, I count that um, as part of my income. Mm -hmm. And so when you thumb through uh, the ads or go on, you know, uh, app apartments.com and you see the two bedroom one bath no section eight Mm -hmm. we're finding that across the state close to 75 percent of voucher holders they expire before they can use them and Mm. and find a place to rent um, because they can't find a landlord who'll take them yeah and so that's the crux of sb329 to say that um, with all things being equal if i'm a voucher holder and you're not but um, our income is the same, our, our credit rating is the same, uh, our, our background checks out the same, that I can't be denied even applying simply because of the source of my income. Do you worry that um, landlords, even if they're not explicitly allowed to uh, deny someone based on the fact that they're Section 8, We'll find another way. It's interesting. It's interesting. You should say that because uh, the opposition has come to committee now twice, uh, both the assembly and the Senate, to be very clear 
that um, it's nothing against the Section 8 voucher holders, that there's, you know, they, they vehemently deny the notion that we penalize poor people or that we have notions about who Section 8 vouchers holders are. So they deny that there could be other reasons why they deny it. Just for um, our audience, there is some air quoting going on. Yes. Uh, yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, you might need to be a little more explicit in your question in terms of kinds of things you think that they would not accept them for. Because, you know, again, they've denied it. So what we're going to do is take them at face value and just push back on uh, um, the reasons that they've suggested why this bill should not become law. And they've raised issues like the delay um, with which landlords may experience um, getting their unit approved by the housing authorities Mm -hmm. in order to become a Section 8 recipient, uh, if you will. And so we have we've we've responded to what they say their issues are, because I'm going to respect the fact that they say that it's not anything to do with their perceptions of who Section 8 voucher holders are, Mm -hmm. that I'm going to honor that. And I hope that they're telling the truth. Well, but you, I mean, to be clear, you sound very skeptical of of that. I mean, that's the air quotes. Yeah, that's the air quotes. So, so what do what do you think? Again, kind of zooming out a little bit first. What what do you think? Uh, some of the reasons are why people who have Section Eight vouchers do not um, do not uh, get them accepted. I think it's some of the same reasons why before California got rid of the, our redevelopment uh, program, um, and we had municipalities that were willing to build housing for veterans and seniors, but less so inclined for, you know, low-income families, I think that there's bias. Mm-hmm. There, People operate off of assumptions about who this person is because they are poor. Um, and a part of our effort to get this bill promoted um, is to kind of peel back those onion layers. Uh, my pro tem, Tony Atkins, spoke eloquently on the Senate floor about her experience as a staff member to a former city councilwoman. And, you know, her question she posed to all of us, she said, you know, what happened? When the uh, renter's market was not what it is today, people clamored to get Section 8. Section 8 is a reliable source of income because your Section 8 payment from government is going to be on time. Mm -hmm. She said, so what happened? Uh, she talked about being a field deputy working for this city councilwoman and knowing communities and knowing residents and being able to dispel some of the myths about people assuming a certain property was Section 8, you know, when it was not. So I think we have bias. We have race-based bias. Mm-hmm. We have class-based bias um, that, that kind of shadows or influences our perception about who people really are. We've had amazing witnesses come and testify in committee about why this bill is important to them. One young woman came to testify on the Assembly Policy Committee, you know, with a stack that she uh, had been a 17-year renter, never once late on her rent, which could be verified. I thought, I think I was late with my Sacramento rent last <laughs> month because I forgot it was the freaking first. <laughs> so who can say that a, a, they have an absolutely flawless record in terms mm-hmm. of on-time rent every month for such a long period of time? She's had a health crisis. She now qualifies for Section 8. Her current building doesn't accept it where she has been a tenant for 17 years. Mm-hmm. So she's looking for a new property. And she was in a state of panic because her voucher was going to expire the very next day. Sure. And she had 100 places that she's attempted to file um, uh, rental applications 
uh, and they were not accepted. Mm-hmm. So the whole point of this bill is give me a shot. It doesn't mandate that you accept Section 8, yeah. but it does say stop disallowing me from even applying. Mm-hmm. 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 So um, you referenced this earlier about um, some landlords having concerns about the amount of time it may take to do inspections or other potential red tape, if you will, um, for this program. Do you accept that as, a, as legitimate reasons for why landlords may not uh, want to be involved in the program? I heard them when they first mentioned it, so we went back um, to the drawing board and began to do some research and started calling some of the larger counties. Uh, San Diego County, for example, has a pre-inspection program, and they're clear that landlords can get their inspection within one business day after receiving their request. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Orange County has a turnaround time. It's it's, uh, well less than two weeks. Again, they've got a new program where they will prioritize new contracts. Santa Barbara County's turnaround is very quick. They inspect units within the same day or the next day, depending upon the availability of the landlord. L.A. County, my home county, can, by virtue of our size and the number of applicants, can have longer inspection times. But nonetheless, the majority of their inspections are finalized within 15 days. Mm -hmm. Mm. And so when we were told 60 to 90 days, we just did not find that to be true. So is there any thing so you think would you call this uh, objection or red herring is in your perspective? It, from my perspective, absolutely. When we went back and actually called the housing authorities to ask those tough questions, I understand that there are multiple. Pro- we had sure. colleagues. I had colleagues in the legislature who asked questions like, "If we were we holding these landlords to a different standard, mm-hmm. you know, than other landlords?" I'm a landlord yeah. in LA mm-hmm. County. My housing, my my rental unit is inspected annually. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't currently have a Section 8 tenant, but I all, because I'm a landlord and because it's a rental unit, it's inspected annually. We were clear, we heard from advocates that the Section 8 uh, requirements um, for inspection are no different than the counties who require rental units be inspected annually anyway. It's basic health and safety. And from my perspective, because public dollars are used, we do want to make sure that the property that public dollars are being are, are, are paying for do meet a basic health and safety standard. And so I think the inspections are fair and appropriate, and they don't appear to exceed the inspection requirements for non-Section 8 rental units in counties that require inspections. So it's not just you as uh, a legislator who's also a landlord. There's uh, quite a few members um, of the legislature who are also landlords. I'm wondering if you think that influences at all their attitude towards not just this specific bill, but other kind of pro-renter bills um, that have uh, had a difficult time getting through the legislature. You know, all of us um, bring our own ordinary life skills and the lens of our own life experiences to the legislature every day. Not a day goes by where you won't hear a member stand up on the floor and reference a personal life experience in their objection to or support of a bill. We hear members talk about that all the time. And so, you know, uh, I, I think that's just human. That's the lens through which we see the world. What I think is important and appropriate is that that's not the only lens we use to view what's best for 
the 40 million residents of the state of California. Do you know of any lawmakers who are landlords that are renting to uh, someone who's Section 8? I don't know. So I want to um, put a fine point on going back to your bill in particular. You reference that you think the um, sort of inspection uh, question um, is a red herring in opposition to your bill. Do you feel like there's any legitimate um, opposition to your bill that, that or opposition to um, denying Section 8 voucher holders aside from, um, say, discriminatory um, thoughts, either perceptions or, or thoughts based on race or class? I thought about it a lot as we listened to the issues in committee, and I was able to really, you know, uh, come back with, from my perspective, a very different perspective. Uh, other issues they raised was that insurance costs would be higher if you accept Section 8 uh, recipients. That's when I went to my own life experience. I thought my insurer has never asked me uh, if my tenant uh, has a housing voucher or not. That just doesn't come mm. anywhere in the conversation about how I provide insurance to my property. Uh, we were able to pull up past legislation to prevent insurance companies from doing that. So we were able to, you know, um, dispel mm-hmm. um, that issue. And mm-hmm. so th- there were no issues raised, quite frankly, that I felt um, that we weren't able to challenge um, and overcome. Uh, let's broaden this out a little bit to some of the other um, uh, sort of major housing is- issues that have been discussed this year. There is a current uh, another kind of high-profile renter bill, um, AB fourteen to two, which would cap rents um, statewide at seven percent plus inflation. A variety of kind of nuances to that, but that's kind of the high level and for a temporary period of three years. High-level um, overview of the bill. What What are your thoughts on that bill? Uh, I'm glad to see action and traction being taken uh, on this issue of capping rents rents uh, across the state. Uh, in my own district, in the 30th Senate District in Culver City, mm-hmm. the city council took action just last week. It was reported in the L.A. Times where they capped it at 3% for a year while we they continue to have the discussion and debate. L.A. County Board of Supervisors took a similar action. So I think in absence of a statewide po- policy, municipalities are stepping up to do what they feel is best for their own Um, communities. Um, I think it's a fair and appropriate conversation. I represent, again, the city of Los Angeles that's had rent control for decades. Um, And so I think it's important for other areas of the state to engage in this conversation. It's important. I I noticed you didn't say you supported uh, Assemblymember (laughs) Chu's bill. Do you support the bill? I do. Okay. I do support it. Mm-hmm. Okay. I do. I, I've su- I'm supporting the actions taken in my local district, uh, and I think it's an important step uh, as we engage in the discussion around housing affordability right. in our state. Have you talked to the governor about your bill? G- very general conversations. I was a part of a group that the governor invited in to kind of talk about the housing package. And this was back me. in the spring. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And he invited mm-hmm. me to attend because of three two nine. And so it was clear to me that he was aware of all the bills in the hopper at that time. Um, so we haven't had a direct conversation about it, um, but by virtue of being in that room, I think it's something, um, at least in concept, that he supports. So there's one bill uh, that you did not have the opportunity to vote on because it was held in Senate appropriations uh, back in the spring. Uh, this is uh, Senate Bill 50, which would have increased, uh, allowed for increased density uh, near transit areas and also um, allowed for fourplexes in single-family, currently single-family-only zones, among a number of other things. We've talked about this legislation ad nauseum on, on, on the podcast. Um, what's your thoughts on that bill? You know, uh, you're right. I didn't have an opportunity to vote on the bill. Uh, I, it is 
it is the bill um, going on 10 years of serving in the legislature that I've received probably the most uh, constituent huh. comment and input about. Wow. Input from constituents in communities ranging from Cheviot Hills and Century City, who mm-hmm. have some of the highest income earning zip codes in the country, to South L.A. And all the letters start out with the same paragraph. Please don't alter the charm of my community and mm-hmm. my single family home. I worked hard to be here and, and build my community and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And so I've held and been invited to countless neighborhood community groups going back to when he introduced the bill previously a year ago. Yeah. And my comment to, to, and all, consistently in all of those meetings was I appreciate that you say no to SB 50, but what are we going to say yes to? Because you can't continue to stop me in the weekends at the gas station or the market and say, Senator Mitchell, what are you going to do about homelessness? No, this is a what are we going to do about a, a, what are we going to do about a social and moral problem? I don't want to live in a California where we continue to struggle and grapple with how we house our friends family, and neighbors, because that's who my homeless or unhoused constituents who live in Skid Row are. They are not people from other states. They are our friends, family, and neighbors who can't afford housing in their own communities. And so I've never officially taken a position on the bill. It was important for me to continue to look at the amendments. Um, Senator Weiner, at one point, I, I've, and he's done all I ask. I've asked him to have conversations with my city council members who opposed it. He's done that. And I agreed with my city council member who said, you know, we want him to see our community. Um, people suggest that because the senator's from Sa- San Francisco, that that is the only lens through which he sees housing. Mm-hmm. And so they wanted him to see uh, when you drive down Slauson, uh, which is a main uh, a, a um, transit corridor yeah. mm-hmm. and the close proximity to houses um, throughout that area. So, and that was fair. Um, there was some suggestion that uh, L.A. would be excluded from the bill. <laughs> some inference from from some advocates, right? Because they already have a very aggressive plan. Uh, right. And I see that every weekend when I fly home with a 30-story uh, housing unit being built right on La Cienega yeah. in an area that zoning allows it, but it is a traditionally single-family residence community. And so I see my city and the current zoning laws allowing for multiple um, family units being constructed in neighborhoods where some of my constituents aren't happy currently. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's a conversation we need to continue. If not that, then what? Clearly, uh, uh, California and L.A. County is behind the eight ball in terms of construction of new units, the new units needed based on the population. So we've got to do that. But the other piece is what SB 329 is trying to solve, keeping people housed where they are. Mm -hmm. You mentioned you haven't taken a position on the bill what is your position on the bill? I, I really don't have one, in all well, honesty. I mean, no, it that's was, true. But it was ready. To, it was pretty close to being going on the Senate floor. Nah, yeah. nah, you know, that's I mean, not one true. One more step, right? Well, yeah, yeah but you've yeah. seen bills go into Appropriations Committee one way, come out very different. Sure, sure, sure. And so, and so until I'm in a position to vote on a bill, that tends to be my pattern. And I'm not trying to be, you know, funny style. Sure. 
uh, when I went to those community groups, we would show them Excel spreadsheets. This is the current amended version of the bill. Yeah. These are the issues you've raised to me and phone calls to my office or to my uh, or email. Uh, this amended version has handled these issues. Mm-hmm. So that bill was a moving target. Mm-hmm. And I have seen bills. I have been the author of bills that looked one way when they went into probes sure. and came out of a probes and I didn't even recognize my own bill. <laughs> so, no, I'm that's 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 a solid answer. Okay. Um, when it was a, a bill in progress, but it was important for me to engage with my community to say if not this then what is the solution? Because it's going to take all of us. You can't expect that we're in LA County going to be able to house and find housing for the 56,000 homeless people without our own neighborhoods beginning to look different. Is it Senator Weiner's bill? Maybe not, but we all have to check ourselves in terms of our expectation. If indeed we want to live in a civilized society where people have access to housing they can afford. So let me ask this. Do you think that California should have Zones for only single-family homes, uh, let's say, within a mile of transit, mass transit. My experience in Los Angeles, that's not the case currently. Uh, the well, reason the, the, we're the, able, the reason we are able, yeah. in a city who steps up and says, "I don't have to wait for the state to give me direction. We can do that." The reason my city is able to build the multi-story, multiple-family housing now is because the city has taken action. And so the state oftentimes steps in Mm -hmm. when local municipalities fail. So if local municipalities don't want the state to do an overreach, as they say, handle your business. The city of L.A. did. There are many single-family zones in the city of L.A. that are exempt from the program that you're referencing now, the Transit-Oriented Communities Program. They're not touched by it. So do you think that... Um, as a matter of general principle, that there should be single-family-only zones, again, say, within a mile of, of uh, mass transit stops? You know, I that's something I have to think about. You know, to be perfectly honest, I don't know. I know we have a problem that uh, it takes um, all of us to put our shoulder to the grindstone to solve, uh, and people have to be willing to engage in the conversation versus this gotcha mentality and you know they're going to double down on knowing that bill, um, um, and not have any suggestions on policies that they're willing to say yes to. I know Liam would love to go line by not line in SB 15 mm-hmm. and have you comment on each individual clause. But I actually want to turn to the budget. So you're obviously a veteran of um, budget negotiations, um, both with Governor Brown and now Governor Newsom. Could you contrast for us how housing? Um, was discussed in uh, previous budgets under Governor Brown with um, how it was discussed uh, this year with Governor Newsom? That's a good question, and I don't know that I can go quite to that granular level. I, I, you know, the negotiations um, as a legislator were very different. They're different people, different kind of styles, different mm-hmm. negotiations. What were, what were those differences? Uh, this governor uh, was very engaged. I mean, all of us saw that in, in his... Uh, uh, release of his January budget. Mm-hmm. To my utter surprise, um, he, it, it was indeed his budget. It has his fingerprints all over it. I didn't anticipate that. He took the oath of office 
like five minutes before that was released. <laughs> and so I remember sitting in a women's caucus meeting saying, as we were developing and beginning to think about our strategy for our women's caucus priority budget ask, I said, you know what? We don't have to worry about it. We have time. The May revise will reflect his priorities, not January. Don't worry about it. And then we all saw that press conference, and I thought, well, I'm wrong. Uh, this <laughs> is his budget. Was that a mistake on, on his part at all? Because I know how... Liam and I have kind of talked about it is as a byproduct of that, he raised expectations. He said a lot of stuff, especially with housing in January, that didn't end up uh, becoming part of the actual budget in uh, June, right? You know, uh, I had a conversation with him when I talked to him about an issue, and I said, you know, I, I hope that you will address this in January so I and others don't have to spend a whole bunch of time fighting to get it addressed in May. And so I think he set a high standard in January. I ho- I certainly don't perceive him as a failure, and I hope he doesn't, in terms of where he ultimately had to land. Um, for me as a policymaker, I prefer that than coming in with a, a, a budget in January that's the floor, mm-hmm. that we have to fight over whose numbers we're going to accept. And I don't think that's a negative. He set aspirational goals. He then has to negotiate with the legislature. You know, the budget he submits in January is his. It, it, it becomes ours as we start the budget uh, hearing process. We get the May revise. But again, it comes back to the legislature. And so I don't think that's a failure or a sign of weakness. I want to ask about something you brought up a little bit earlier where you uh, referenced in respect to Senator Weiner the fact that he's from San Francisco and potentially sees housing issues through a San Francisco lens. Um, it's not just not just him. A lot of the uh, legislators who are introducing kind of large housing bills are from the Bay Area, the governor also for being from the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. Um, to what extent do you think that there is a divide in the legislature between the Bay Area and other areas of the state, Los Angeles in particular, when it comes to, to seeing and proposing um, uh, uh, housing issues and ideas to, to, to fix their state's problems? We have a representative form of government, and so we're representing the perspective of our constituents. And like I said earlier, we all have our own lens. And so uh, I know L.A. Yeah. I know the L.A. landscape. That's my orientation, third-generation native. Um, and so that's what I bring to the negotiations and the lens I bring in terms of what all kinds of policies should look and feel like. So I don't fault them um, if that's their orientation. Sure. It's up to all of us to figure out what's in the best interest of California as a whole. Why aren't more L.A. legislators involved in those types of uh, coalitions that Liam is describing? And and I th- thank you. And then that that was the direction I was going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we all well, come. I, I don't all... know if that's a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we all come to this work yeah. with visions and ideas about what our policy priorities will be. But I think that's a good point. You know, I can't get mad at my Bay Area colleagues when they have chosen to make this issue a priority and find themselves in leadership and housing committee and et cetera, right. et cetera. Right. We now have an L.A. County caucus. Mm-hmm. There have been L.A. There have been efforts in the past to organize, um, but I'm very proud of um, um, our kind of shared leadership and our effort to have an L.A. County focus on a couple of issues. Um, our current convener is Assemblymember uh, Cam Lager Dove. We meet monthly, and as a caucus. We've identified kind of transportation, infrastructure, and housing as our caucus priorities. And so I think you will begin to see a shift, a change in terms of 
who's engaging in these conversations around housing because so we get it's important. So a L.A. legislator housing package. Perhaps. So you're well aware when there's um, multiple bills that are difficult bills or big bills on a single topic, uh, a lot of times the end result is, say, only one of them gets through. Um, lawmakers decide, oh, okay, if you're going to make me take one vote, I'll take – or a vote, I'll take one vote. Um you could foresee a scenario where uh, your bill on Section 8 and the rent cap bill um, from Assemblymember Chu could face um, sort of a similar fate. Do, do, do you see that potentially being a concern that these bills uh, may ultimately be seen as competitive or people will have to choose one? Um, I think that is a reality every day. And it's interesting that you would would juxtapose my bill with with Mr. Chu's and that yeah. and that's not the bill I think um, it could be a challenge for SB 329. Yeah. Um, mm. Quite frankly, my own colleague in the Senate, Senator Hill, has a bill mm-hmm. um, that looks at um, the the entirety of voucher programs. Mm-hmm. When we stand on the floor, you will hear people say, you know, no, no veteran who serves this country should ever be homeless. Sure. Mm-hmm. And so we prioritize poor people. Yeah. You know, veterans, we don't think it should be. Uh, I've stood on the floor on any number of occasions and said that while I support veterans all day, I'm not going to prioritize a veteran over anybody else that's homeless because I don't think anybody should call the streets home, period. And so I think that there is this issue about, you know, Section 8 holders versus veterans who get vouchers as well. And so I'm hoping that we don't get into a position where we're pitted against the broader voucher um, conversation Hmm. And um, Section 8 voucher holders continue to be penalized. Hmm. I hope that's not the case. Hmm. Uh, you don't fear at all that with um, Chew's bill. There, there does seem to be some significant momentum behind it now, now that Newsom has kind of explicitly uh, endorsed it. And a few uh, opposing parties, including the Developers Association, have said they're not going to oppose it anymore. You, you don't worry that the uh, Apartment Association might say, all right, fine. You guys can pass this one, but uh, no way we're letting you uh, get Mitchell's bill through. Well, that anything can happen. Okay. Come on now. Uh, <laughs> and let's be clear. The apartment associations have already said, hell no, we won't go on SB 329. Mm-hmm. So that's not new. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think it's appropriate that we juxtapose, um, you know, an, an overall cap on rents with Section 8 voucher holders. Mm-hmm. You know, the value of Section 8, uh, and, and, what, and, and we've, we've got to dispel a number of myths. You know, accepting a Section 8 voucher doesn't mean that the Housing Authority dictates to you what your rent must be. Mm-hmm. Any Anything else that we neglected to ask about housing generally? This is your forum to uh, get out to our thousands upon thousands of uh, housing nerd listeners. I think that we're at a interesting and challenging kind of point in our collective economic and political existence as a state. That, you know, if you believe that housing, having access to housing is a fundamental right, then we are compelled to come together and come up with a solution. And the solution has to run the gamut. Uh, Temporary shelters, permanent supportive housing, affordable housing. We have to make sure that the entire spectrum of housing affordability is meeting the unique needs of everyone within that spectrum. Because when it doesn't, everybody gets squeezed. The middle income earners in my district, for example, who are employed by the entertainment industry, who really Mm -hmm. make good money, Mm -hmm. um, can't afford to buy. 
um, they're forced to rent. That takes that unit off the market for someone who's not in a position to buy, who may be a lifetime renter. And so, you know, it we, we keep squeezing down uh, and we're not in a position as a state to really kind of grow our housing stock or we haven't been proactive in that. So I'm going to ask one more question, um, specific one. Um, how did you vote on Proposition 10, the rent control initiative, uh, last November? Are you going to ask me how I personally cast a vote in elections that are private? Yes. <laughs> and I'm not going to answer. Okay. So you're not you don't say how you you don't endorse propositions, you don't have Very rarely. Okay. Very rarely. And you know why? Yeah. Well, a ballot initiatives are the bane of my existence. Mhm. As budget chair, uh, ballot box budgeting limits the slice of the pie that I have control over. Mm-hmm. When I think broadly across generally across the decades, um, uh, there are more initiatives that have harmed my community than have been helpful. Mm-hmm. So it's not, wh- while it the original vision was that it was more democratic, it's less and less. Yeah. You know, poor people and underrepresented communities don't get to get their initiatives qualified. Mm-hmm. They don't, yeah. <laughs> on large part. So I rarely um, um, endorse because that's supposed to be the process that the public gets to engage in. So I don't want, you know, my say-so to unduly influence so I've endorsed in some instances, but not across the board. I also think that I do, too, am a private citizen and have the right to have my personal opinion when I cast my individual vote. Sure. That's where I get to be Holly Mitchell, not state senator, <laughs> and weigh in in a Democratic, air quote again, process yeah. Yeah. about what should be. Now, when I step up there on legislation, that's where I step up as Senator Mitchell representing uh, a million people. Okay. Sure. Well, so, uh, let me ask a let me ask ahead. a question as a matter of policy. Yep, do you, do you, you think go. the state should repeal the Costa Hawkins Rental Housing Act, which prohibits local governments from expanding rent control? Costa Hawkins, as you know, poor Senator Leno introduced that year after year after year after year, and I've supported it. I've been on record um, supporting um, the Leno bill, so I have a voting record where I've been in support. So yes, repeal it. I been on record supporting legislation that would repeal it. Okay. I have taken that vote, which is a matter of public record. Okay. All right. Great. That's it. Thank I you so much for your time. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank yes. you. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Senator Mitchell. Y'all need some air conditioning. In this <laughs> I know. Thank you for listening to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin, housing and data reporter at CalMatters. You can find me on Twitter at MLevinReports. Uh, I'm Liam Dillon with the LA Times, uh, and my Twitter handle is at Dylan Liam. Please, if you can, come out to our live podcast event, September 18th in San Francisco. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you again in a couple weeks.